0: Sounds like we have some people that's anticipating going home, amen? Yes, sir, yes, sir, amen. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see the face of Jesus, amen. If you could stand to your feet and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, and what a fitting song for today's subject and passion and passage. Mark chapter 13, we're going to start a mini-series today on the end times. And today's subject is going to be signs of the time, amen? Signs of the time, the end times. We are anticipating the coming of our Lord. We are anticipating the day where he comes through the sky. And the sky is rolled back like a scroll. And the angels come and rapture up his elect. And we see his face and prepare for the land of no more. Amen. The land of no more arthritis. Amen. The land of no more baby mama drama. Amen. The land of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrows. Where every day is a Sabbath. Amen. We anticipate that great day. And Jesus here is preparing his disciples for that day. Mark chapter 13. Today we're going to read the whole chapter for the sake of context. Um, And then we'll just stop when it's time to stop. Amen. And we'll pick up next week. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse number one. And as he came out of the temple... When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor, excuse me, enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloth. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in the winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created into now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, look. Here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all the things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as a branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. And the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass. But discerning the day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. We praise God for his sufficient, inerrant, wonderful, powerful, and mighty word. You may be seated. Uh, Father, we thank you this morning, for truly you are so good. Uh, You, Father God, are the God of this universe. Everything is in your control. You are the most beautiful being within this universe and outside of this universe. Your presence is calming, your presence is powerful, your presence gives perspective, and we thank you for your presence here this morning. We also thank you for your word, for your word is like honey dripping from a honeycomb. Your word, Father God, is better than bread, for man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of your mouth. Your word, Father God, conquers nations. Your word, Father God, puts our heart at peace. Your word brings conviction. Your word brings change. Your word brings perspective. Your word is what we need. So we pray that you would speak now from your word. Make our hearts alive by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. What a blessing it is to be with you all this morning and uh, to each of our visitors. We are, are glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. The end time. Signs of the time. Signs of the time. When I was about in the 6th in the, in the or 7th grade, I can't remember the exact year. I believe it was the 6th grade. Um, I had a, a health class that Uh, really shook me to the core. Uh, In that health class, we learned everything, of course, about uh, the human autonomy and the body and how it works and how to take care of it. But we also learned about the birth process. We saw a movie that was called The Miracle of Life, and this movie absolutely shook me to the core. I will never forget the day that my teacher made us watch this movie. This movie was like nothing ever before because what it showed was the whole process of conception. It was the first movie that was able to show uh, uh, the birthing process from the very beginning. It showed the egg and the ovary. It showed the fallopian tubes. It was a a real-life picture of what took place when a woman got pregnant. And it showed everything in between. It showed her emotions and feelings through the months. And it also showed the hospital scene. Now, when I say it showed the hospital scene, I mean it showed the whole scene. It showed her having birth pains and contractions. It, it showed her family trying to console her. It showed the, the pain and the agony. It showed her pushing out. It showed the baby coming out. Now, I don't think I have to explain to you how uncomfortable an 11- or 12-year-old is sitting next to his friend seeing a baby come out of the Matrix. I remember going home and... Uh, telling my parents about it, and trying to get my parents to do something about the school showing that movie again. But you know, that movie really helped to to shape me over the years in my perspective about a woman's pregnancy. I remember thinking, uh, all throughout my teen years, and even uh, right before my wife and I had our first shot, I remember having these these fearful thoughts about the reproduction process. I remember telling myself that if I ever was blessed to have a, a child, that I would be in the hospital room, but I would be in the furthest corner away. I remember resolving in my heart to just stand in the corner and just, Just to ask the doctors and say to the doctors, hey, doc, how's it going over there? Cut the umbilical cord? No way. No way. But you know, when my wife told me that she was uh, expecting and we were excited, uh, but my heart was also fearful because I knew that (laughs) that day was coming. I knew that I would soon be standing in a hospital room waiting on her to deliver that child. And I'll be honest, uh, while I was excited that we were having a child, I was very slowful and, and hoping that it would delay as long as possible. I was very fearful. And some of you know, I talked to some of you, and some of the mothers in here they gave me great advice. Some of you talked to me, talked me into being more active and and you guys began to prepare me for that. My parents and her parents began to prepare me before that. They began to, to help me to get over that fear. We went to Lama's classes, and boy, was that a joy. And the whole time we're in Lamaze class, I'm telling Amber, like, sweetie, I know I'm supposed to be coaching you, but you're going to have to coach me. I'm afraid that I'm going to fall out. But as the time got nearer, And the more and more I got prepared, the less fearful I became, the more I anticipated that moment. And when the day happened, when we left from church that Sunday and my wife told me that it was about to happen and we went into that hospital room, fear wasn't there anymore. I was anxious, I was nervous, but I wasn't afraid. In fact, I I found myself having courage and being active because I had been prepared. In fact, there was a moment where the nurse came in and she was just kind of coaching Amber through and and, and testing her and she said, sweetie, uh, we're really close. You're about to have this baby any minute now. And she said, sir, would you come behind here and stand right here and just encourage her because I've got to run and get help. I said, what? So all of a sudden, I find myself right there in the action like a quarterback. And I'm ready to call out plays, 382, blue. 382. I'm ready to call hike because I felt prepared. These birth pains no longer made me feel hopeless and fearful because by the grace of God, I was prepared. You know, in the text that we are looking at today, Jesus is warning his disciples about the future. And he is telling them that the future, that in their future, that there will be chaos and there will be pain. In fact, in verse five, he says that when this chaos and when this pain begins to come, he says, don't look to this time as the end, but see it as the beginning of birth pains. He says, a bunch of things are going to happen, but I don't want you to 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 conclude that this is the end of the world yet, I want you to see this as contractions. I want you to see this as the beginning of the birth, as the beginning of the time where Christ will be born and come through the matrix of the sky for all those who have put their faith and trust in him. Now, we have to stand back at this chapter, and we have to stand back at this subject, and we have to admit that this is a difficult chapter, and this is a difficult subject. In fact, what we're studying today, most theologians tag this doctrine, tag this teaching as eschatology. Eschatology. It's a big word. Say that word with me, eschatology. Let's say it again, eschatology. Eschatology. Sometimes we hear big words and we're we're tempted to be afraid or or to to be lost when we hear them. But all most big words are just a a long word that's trying to explain uh, 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 something else in in a short way. And what eschatology is, eschatology is the study of the end times, the study of the end times, the study of the second coming of Jesus. Now this study, eschatology, the study of the second coming of Jesus is a deep subject. It, is, it can be a very overwhelming subject. It can be a, a, a very uh, uh, intimidating subject. And we know that it's an overwhelming subject and we know that it's a very intimidating subject because of the, the diversity in which most Christians uh, find themselves. It is It is. It is a subject that has very little consensus among pastors and theologians. Why? There's a couple reasons why. Number one is because of the genre in which most eschatological texts appear. The genre. Most prophecies about the end times appear in what is called apocalyptic language. And what apocalyptic language is, is it is a very symbolic language. A language that uses pictures and analogies that seem odd at times. It uses signs and symbols. So sometimes when people look at this, like the book of of Revelation, we see all these signs and these things going on. It's like, what in the world do we do with this? What is this beast that has seven heads? Right? Right? So it's, it's kind of confusing at times in trying to work through it. But, and, and sometimes we, we're, we see stuff in scripture and we say, well, is, is this literal or is this figurative? For example, when we're talking about the end times, there's a teaching in the Bible that's called what we call the millennial age. And basically what it is, is we look at Revelations chapter 19 through 21 and some other passages, is the Bible teaches that there will be a thousand year reign in which Jesus Christ will rule the earth. Now, some people say, well, this thousand year reign is very literal. It's going to be a thousand years in which Jesus is going to come back and he is going to rule the earth. The earth is going to be just as it is. He's going to rule it for a thousand years. And then there's going to be an uprising and Jesus is going to go to war, the final war of Armageddon. And, and he's going to defeat the devil and, and he's going to bring the ultimate consummation and victory. And then heaven and earth will collide and we will have a new heaven and a new earth. And then others say, no, that's not a, that's not a very, that's not literal. It's a figurative thing. It's a, it's a picture of, of now. It's a picture of the church age. Right now it's a thousand year reign of Christ and Christ is reigning and he is ruling in, in the midst of his people. Oh, it was very difficult as we look at the end times because there are different ways in which we can interpret it. But another reason why it's difficult is because of the order of events. We have all of these different things going on, and people argue and say, well, what's going to happen first, and what's going to happen second, and what's going to happen next? And it's written in such a way to you really have to dig in. And, and honestly, most of the major uh, streams of thought on eschatology all have a great argument. A great argument. But you know, there's all kind of divisions in the church over these issues. And there's these long, weird names for these issues. Post-millennium. Historical pre-mill. A-millennium. I mean, it's just all these groups and everybody's making this argument. And we look at these texts and we say, well, I know the truth and this is the way you need to interpret it. And it seems as if the Bible isn't really clear when we come to these passages. And that, that brings the angst in my heart sometimes when I read these passages because, Deacon Pollard, I know that God is clear. And I know that God's word is clear. And I know that there is one truth. And I know that God has spoken. So, so what do we do with this? Why has God allowed this prophetic picture And this prophetic language to be so difficult to understand. And I'm going to make the argument that God, in his sovereignty, through the Spirit, has written prophecy this way intentionally. He has showed us a picture of the future, and he has made it so amazing and so beautiful, but so complex in order... To keep us active and alert. He has given us all these orders and given us all these things, and we're trying to say it's coming like this, it's coming like that. But but honestly, Jesus can come back at any time. One of my other brothers can be absolutely right. And they can, and, and the stance that I can take could take could could not be the stance that God has taken and that He has ridden. I could have missed something in interpreting, and vice versa, and he's done this in order that we would not be able to neatly put it together and anticipate. Because let me tell you what happens and what would happen if we had a date and if we had it neatly packaged. How do you respond when someone gives you a date to do something by? If we knew exactly when Jesus was coming back, and if we knew the way that Jesus was coming back, we would procrastinate. We would wait till the absolute (laughs) last day that we could to be evangelistic, to share the gospel. Well, we got to next year. (laughs) We would just continue to put it off, or we would take a different approach. And we will become extremely aggressive and overly aggressive in evangelism. To the point we are beating people over the head, trying to warn them that Jesus is coming back. And we'll sound like fanatics or weirdos. And we'll lose balance in every other area of the Christian life. See, God doesn't just have wisdom, y'all. God is wisdom. God is amazing. He penned, he allowed these authors to to pen these words as he as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and he did it in such a unique and wonderful way that keeps us looking to him and living active life. So what I want to say to those who are here who are really in love with eschatology and who like to study the end times, I want to encourage you to not obsess about the details of the last thing. I want to encourage you not to obsess about them, And I want to encourage you to be humble when you approach prophetic texts. To have a stance. And to study the last things, but to be humble and and to be willing to admit that you may not be right. This may not be the order in which things unfold. And I also want you to get the main idea of every apocalyptic text. The, The main point by which the Spirit gave it to the early church. See, Jesus here is, is warning the disciples about the future in order that they would be alert and active disciples in the present. The book of Revelation does the same thing. When John writes to the church of Revelation, he is warning them about the future in order that they would be alert and active disciples in the present. He's not warning them in order that they would be fearful and trying to figure out what does this mean. He is warning them in order that they would wake up and serve him now with courage and confidence. You know, I know my heart. (laughs) And, And there are some days where I am slothful and just extremely slow to do the things of God. There are some days where I know the Lord is is telling me to step out on faith and to share my faith with someone, and and I go kicking and screaming like Jonah if I go. There are are some days where I turn on CNN and I'm watching the news and I am just overcome with with a, a hopelessness and just thinking what in the world is going on? There's some days where where I'm timid. If you're like me, you're the same way. Some days you are just really slow to do the things of God. Some days you are living in fear and timidity. Some days you look at the world saying and you just feel hopeless. And I'm telling you that this picture of the end times, this warning that Jesus is giving is an antidote to that. When we think about the future, And when we look at passages like this and we remind ourselves that this is not the way that it's always going to be and that Jesus can come back at any time. We have an antidote for our slowfulness. We have an antidote for our fearful living. We have an antidote for our hopelessness. And as Christians, as we interpret world events and as we interpret things that's going on in our own lives, as we interpret things that's going on in our coworkers' lives and our our school uh, mates' lives, we can interpret them from a position of hope, from a position of victory, because we know the end and we know that Jesus is going to be with us till the end. But when the end times... It's just a, an idea when it's just a fault that we really don't believe can happen in our lifetime and we really don't believe in. We kind of think of it like a, I don't know, uh, like a unicorn. Something that we know we really convince our heart it, it, it's not there, but we kind of hope it's there because it's cute. When, that's what, when the end times become a unicorn, <laughs> we are missing out on a major motivation in the present. Let's look at this text really quick. Verse 1, chapter 13. And as as he came out the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown out. So the Bible says that Jesus comes out of the temple. And we know, starting in chapter uh, 11, that Jesus has kind of cursed the temple, so to speak. He went in and he just was throwing things all around and showing Israel that their religion, it, it no longer mattered. It no longer was genuine. And from chapters 11 to chapters 13, Jesus is in the temple or near the temple and he is ministering. And chapters 11 through 13 show Jesus going against the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin. They are trying to catch him up in his words. They are, these are the religious leaders of the day. They are, are trying to, to expose him as a false teacher, as a, a false prophet. But Jesus is so smooth and he's so cool and he's just kind of dodging all of their punches and they ask him a question and he gives them an answer. And he gave an answer so smooth once they said, man, let's not ask, ask him no more questions publicly. This man is too smooth. So now they're leaving the temple. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, as I leave this temple, may you know that this temple religion is officially damned. It's officially cursed. And one of the disciples, it doesn't say which one. He looks back and he's looking around at the temple and looking around at these, the buildings in Jerusalem. And he says, man, these buildings are dope. Look how fresh these buildings are. And Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, but... This, these buildings will be destroyed and there will not be one stone standing on another stone. Jesus predicts that one day these stones will not be here. So later on, the disciples was on the Mount of Olives, which was directly across from the temple. And the Bible says that Jesus was near his inner circle. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they asked him a question. In fact, they asked him two questions. And these two questions is really the answers that Jesus is going to give. These two questions are are the key to understanding this passage. Listen to the questions that they ask. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, they're asking him, when will the temple and when will Jerusalem be destroyed? And what's going to be the sign? What's going to be the hint that's going to let us know that the time is near? Now, what Jesus does here is he takes these two questions and he expands them and he's really answering four questions. He's going to say, he's going to answer the questions: what, when will this temple, when will this be destroyed and what will be the signs for the temple? But he's also about to answer the question. What will be the signs of the end time? And when will the end times come? So they're thinking that he's just talking about one thing, but Jesus is talking about multiple things. And like I said, with prophecy, God has a way of mingling stuff together and putting stuff together to where we're left scratching our head. The Jews learned this about Jesus. They were expecting Jesus to come as this mighty king and and to take over uh, the world, and and they were going to reign, and they were going to triumph over Rome. And they looked at the scriptures in Isaiah, and that's how they interpreted it. But Isaiah also showed that the coming Messiah was going to be a suffering servant. It was beautifully mingled in to, to the fact that they really couldn't understand when Jesus came the way that he came, making the claims that he came, doing the things that he did, in the same way Jesus is doing what he's doing in order that they would not be able to do what he don't want them to do, which is to fall asleep. So he's about to mingle some stuff in. Ah, you think I'm answering these questions, but I'm about to throw something on you. So throughout this text, we see that he's mingling them together, and Jesus The Bible says, begin to say this. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. So Jesus points them to four signs of the times. And specifically right here, Jesus is pointing them to four signs of the times That Or or four signs that the temple is about to be destroyed, that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And the four signs is, number one, he says there will be false prophets and false messiahs. Number two, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Number three, there will be earthquakes. And number four, there will be famine. Now, while Jesus is talking to these disciples, we also want to remember that there are two other groups of disciples that are are reading this and having a different experience. Number one, it's, it's Mark's readers. The ones who who Peter had in mind, as Mark probably subscribed what he was saying. And this book was probably penned in A.D. 65, 60, 60 to 65 years after the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. And they were reading this, and, and Peter is warning now because at that time it was very tumultuous. This was right at the beginning of, of a lot of rumors of wars. In fact, just a few years later, there will be a great tension between the Jews and Rome. And just about five years later, in A.D. 70, guess what happened? A man by the name of Titus, under the authority of Rome, led an army into Jerusalem, ransacked the city, completely demolished the temple, desecrated it by allowing abominable things to take place in the temple these things came true but the readers who was reading this they didn't that didn't yet happen it was about 5 or 6 years most theologians say away from happening and Jesus is warning them the these things are about to happen but when these things happen as peter is telling them it's not the end of the world it is the beginning of contraction it's like when a, woman, uh, a woman's water break. And I'm so glad that women go through the birthing process. So I'm going to say that again. When a woman's water break. Amen. You know, Lee, we play football, right? Y'all have babies. It's kind of equal. <laughs> so... So when a woman's water breaks and she begins to have contraction, my wife tells me (laughs) that the contractions at the beginning, they're further apart. And at the beginning, they're not as painful as they are at the end. As the baby is coming closer, the contractions get more intense and they come more quickly. Jesus is saying when Jerusalem is overtaken, the contractions will begin but it's not yet. It's not yet. And during Mark's time and during the disciples' time, there were false prophets that were rising up. We read this in the New Testament. We also read this through history. There were a couple false prophets that that really deceived people before Jerusalem fell. But even as we think about this and as we read this, we want to know that these these same signs are going to be evident at the return of Christ because the contractions are going to stay there they're going to get even more intense let's turn our bibles to 1st Thessalonians 1st Thessalonians and we're going to deal with this a little more in depth hopefully next week I said 1 Thessalonians, didn't I? I meant 3rd. 2 Thessalonians, amen. 2 Thessalonians. There's another passage in 1 Thessalonians that we'll deal with later. 2 Thessalonians. Let's look at chapter 2. We hear Paul tar- talking to the church of Thessalonica about a man of lawlessness who many believe to be the same as the Antichrist. I just want to read this slowly for us to see the contractions when they're close and intense. Chapter 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, false prophet. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first. is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them to strong delusions so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul is looking forward to the day as revealed by the Spirit where there will be a lawless one. There will be an a antichrist who will come and he will perform many signs and he will win the attention of many. He will be a false prophet And he will lead many to astray. And my question for you is, are you, are you alert and are you active in pursuing Christ? Because if you are not alert and you are not active, you will be one who is led astray. People who are led astray into cults and into other movements and into false religions aren't always quacks and weirdos. Some of them are simply just led astray because they are not informed and they do not really know Jesus. So they meet someone or hear someone who is very charismatic or who can do some type of miracle or who has some type of gift and and this person speaks into their life and they use some scripture mixed with some science and they mingle it together and all of a sudden this person is being led astray. This person is a Mormon or this person is a Jehovah Witness or this person is following David. The Koresh and they're one of the 80 people that is dying in Waco, Texas or this person is a victim of what happens to Jonestown because they were not active. They were not alert. And God allows delusion to come their way so that they are deceived because they really aren't his. Many false prophets had come. Since this day, and the contraction pains are getting closer, and they're getting harder, it's only going to get worse from here. Wars and rumors of wars is a sign. There was wars and rumors of wars during his disciples' day, as there was many upheavals and, and things going on. But boy, are there wars. Has the contractions gotten more intense now? Not only are there more wars and rumors of wars, But it's easier to hear about them because of mass media. This world is in an upheaval. Every day we're hearing about what's happening in Libya. Every day we're hearing about what's happening in Afghanistan. We know that there's tension in North Korea and South Korea and all amongst Asia. We know that there's a, a war on terror. As Americans, we're constantly on edge. Every time we go to the airport, we are reminded that danger is near, that danger is lurking. We are reminded that our lives can change in an instant by one TSA person making one small mistake. And what is this? Is this just random? Is this just happening this way because we don't have a great foreign policy? No, this is happening because Jesus said it was going to happen. This is happening because a birth is going to take place. Earthquakes. Earthquakes. Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words. The Apostle Paul talking about the earth. And specifically in this chapter, he's talking about a future glory. He's talking about when God's glory is going to ultimately be revealed. Verse 18, he says this. He's talking about his sufferings. And the way he gets through his sufferings and his tribulation and his pain is by focusing on the future. And when he focuses on the future, he concludes that this pain, he calls it light, this light, momentary affliction is nothing to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And Paul had a thorn in his flesh and Paul had a bad, really bad eyesight. We see in Galatians chapter 5 that he's apologizing for writing his letter with such big uh, handwriting and words. He, He knows about suffering. He knows about affliction. He's being beaten, mistreated by his churches. But he says it's light because of the future glory that's going to be revealed. And listen to what he says. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the world, it waits with eager, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Longing for the day when those who have been chosen by God and those who have turned to faith in Jesus are being revealed. He's longing to see that day. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, creation as a result of the fall, since the fall happened, is anticipating and waiting for the day where it would no longer have to be in this state. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have first fruits among the spirit, we groan inwardly. We groan inwardly. I skipped verse 22. That's where I wanted to go. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until then. Do you see this picture? Of childbirth, the whole creation has been having contractions. Waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things right. See, the world, the world that we live in, these earthquakes, these tsunamis, these these horrible things that, that happen by nature is a result of what we call the fall. What happened in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 when man decided to rebel against a holy, pure, and loving God? We decided to be our own kings. We decided to to try to live life apart from God, apart from his rule, apart from his care. And as a result, God gave us what we wanted, and we became our own miniature kings. But as a result, this earth was cursed. This earth was cursed. Every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a tsunami, it should remind you that this is not the way that life is supposed to be. And guess what? This is not the way. It's going to be forever. Some of us, the reason we live our lives the way we live it is because we think that this is the way it's always going to be. We can't imagine a world without pain. We can't imagine a world without tsunamis and earthquakes. We can't imagine a world without evil. But guess what? The Bible says clearly that that world is coming. Jesus told these disciples that tribulations was coming, that that Jerusalem was going to be ransacked. And no shorter time later, it was. And just as he told them that, and it came true true. He tells us that one day things are going to change and he's coming back and we have to believe it. A good friend of mine's and, and friend of many of you all's, uh, Walter Bradley, uh, a member here at the church, he loves es- uh, eschatology. And he's, he's really well, he's very humble in it, but really well versed in eschatology. I always enjoy talking to him about the end times. And he sent me an email uh, some time ago with a, a, a depiction of Uh, of of earthquakes that just hit in 2011 alone. And it it, it was something that he received uh, a while ago, and it just showed all the earthquakes that hit from January 1st in 2011 That, that was on a Richter scale at a high level to March. This is just January through March. Look at that. Look at the different places. The contractions are getting shorter. The contractions are getting more intense. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we alert and are we alive? Are we active for the one who was alert and active for us throughout his whole life and his whole ministry? For the one who kept fighting off temptation? Are we active and are we alert for the one who was active and alert as he went down the Via Della Rosa? As he was nailed to a cross, as he was put in Joseph's tomb, are we active and are we alert for the one who refused to stay dead but who got up on the third day? Are we active and are we alert for the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying actively and interceding for us? Christian, don't put your hope in this world. This world is full of false prophets, it's full of wars and rumors of wars, it's full of earthquakes, and it is filled with famine. Don't put your hope in this world. And yet, even as we sit here, I know that many of us, we have our hope, we have our stock in this world. And all of us, at some point of every day, we are tempted to put our stock in this world. Even the most devout Christians at times put our stock in this world. And what do I mean by put our stock in the world? I mean we place hope in something that is not eternal. We place hope in our job. We place hope in our grandchildren. We place hope in our education. We place hope in areas of life that we know are going to crumble. And some of us in here, you are placing hope in a political figure. You are placing hope in a political party. You believe that if this person is in office, that everything will be okay. You believe that if this party rules the Senate, then all our problems will come. And I want to tell you that you are deceiving yourself. This world is doomed and will always have trouble. And it will always be in a state of, 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 of emergency. Because this world is ran by human beings, human beings who may have a good intent or human beings who really may want to help people, but at the end of the day, human beings cannot fix our deepest needs and our deepest problems. There is only one who can do that, and his name is Yahshua, Emmanuel, Jesus, the Lamb of God. But some of us during this season... Whoever your party, whoever your affiliation, and I'm not telling you not to vote and I'm not telling you to be active and to know the issues as Christians. We ought to be alive and we ought to be alert and we ought to stand for justice and we ought to stand for the poor. and We ought to stand for life and we ought to stand for these things. and We ought to know and we have a civic responsibility to be informed and to make good decisions. But my goodness, when a good decision becomes our hope, we are in trouble. Brian Loretz, a pastor and a theologian who is the son of a very esteemed pastor Crawford, Crawford Loretz, asked these questions on a blog, and I just kind of concise them. And he says, he, he he puts it in front of us and says, what, What's our hope? What's our hope during this political season? Is your passion for politics of this world, is it outweighing your passion for the kingdom of, of God? And he poses five questions. Five questions that will help us to know if our hope is in the kingdom of God, basically a tau theos, or if our hope is in this world. It says, are you a member of a political party but not a member of a local church? This could be a sign that your hope is in the government. Do you spend more time studying the candidates and their political position than you do the word of God? This can be a sign that you are deceived? Is your joy directly tied to how your political party or candidate does? Do you spend more time evangelizing people, trying to convince them to convert to your political ideology or party, than you do actually trying to win people's souls, being used of God to convert them to the heavenly kingdom? Or let me ask it a different way. Are you more equipped to give a uh, defense for the kingdom of this world, for Obama or Romney, than you are for the kingdom of heaven? Is your disdain for the political rival more intense than your disdain for the devil? Every kingdom will fall. We learn this in the book of Daniel, as Daniel is interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue, and the statue had, the statue had a, a head of gold, had a, a chest of, of silver, had a waistline of bronze, had legs of iron, had feet of clay. And Daniel, the Lord told Daniel that this represented the coming kingdoms. This represented Babylon and the Medo-Persia kingdom. This, this represented the kingdoms that were to come. It represented Rome. But all of a sudden, in this dream, a rock, the Bible says that an eternal rock, came down and dashed the statue on the head, and the statue came to pieces. It fell down completely. And we know that this rock is a picture of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. This rock will destroy every man-made kingdom, i.e. Babel. This rock will last forever, and it will be ruled by one who is perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly all-knowing. This is the person that we must put our hope to. Throughout this text, we see Jesus constantly saying, don't let people lead you astray. Be on God. Be on guard." Be on guard. Don't let people lead you astray. Keep awake. and Stay awake. Jesus warns us of the future in order to make us better disciples in the present. What's a disciple? A fully committed follower of God. What's a disciple? A disciple is one who worships the one true living God. What's a disciple? A disciple is one who is a part of the family of God, who has been made alive by the Spirit of God. What's a disciple? A disciple is one who is seeking to grow in service, who is, who is seeking to grow in serving others. What's a disciple? A disciple is a giver, one who supports the kingdom of God by not only giving financially, but by giving their talent and their time. A disciple But a disciple is no good if they're not awake. A disciple is no good if they're not alert. Just like, just like a soldier is no good if he's distracted on the on the on the mission field, a disciple is no good if he's distracted while he's on mission. But by God's grace, even though we all at times are distracted, even though we all at times Fall asleep. Jesus comes back to us just as he comes to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, wake up, watch and pray. He gives us new grace and new mercy every morning. He gives us a new opportunity to recommit ourselves to his mission. He gives us a a fresh perspective and a fresh vision of his cross that reminds us though we may be down, we are never out because there's always an opportunity for a resurrection. And dear Christian, there is an opportunity today for a resurrection. If you know today that you have not been putting your faith in the kingdom of God, but you have been tending to, to lean towards the kingdom of man, today is a day to repent. And the Bible says that God will forgive you. And he will hear you when you go home and when you pick up that newspaper, when you're watching CNN and when Anderson Cooper is standing in some remote place with the wind blowing and telling you about the future. I want you to remind yourself that this is a birth pain. I want you to remind yourself that you have no reason to be afraid because God is with you. I want you to remind yourself that this is a perfect opportunity for you to pray and for you to open your eyes tomorrow and share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone. When we hear of wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines, we need to be encouraged to go and to spread the gospel and to do the Great Commission. There are some in here who I can't say stay awake to. There's some in here we can't say stay alert to because you haven't yet been born again. You're asleep and you're dead in your sin. You don't have life towards God and you can't be passionate about him because you've never repented and turned from your sin. Today is a day where you you can see the future. I'm telling you what the future is. Those who are not elect, those who have not given their life to the Lord, those who have not turned from their sins and their way of living to living for the Lord are those who are lost and who when Jesus comes back, they will not see him as their brother, as their savior, and as their friend, but as their judge. Perhaps that's you here today. Today, you get to read your obituary before it's written. Alfred Noble lived in the 19th century. He was a really creative man, scientific man. He created the dynamite or or expanded it. He he did things that helped us to move into a nuclear uh, uh, stage. The true story is told that this man who put uh, mass weapons in the hands of different nations one day read his obituary early See, his brother had died, but a reporter thought it was him. And they put it in the newspaper that Alfred Noble is dead. They said he's dead. And you know what his legacy was? This reporter said the man who made it possible to kill many has died. But you know what he did? He read that obituary. He got up, and he says, I'm going to change today. And he took his money, And instead of using it for mass destruction, he started using his money and saving his money for a prize, a prize that would go to the person who sought to bring world peace the most that year, and that's what we call the Nobel Peace Prize. He saw his future, and he changed his way of life in order that his legacy would be different. Today, my friend, if you do not know Jesus, you can look at the future. If you are living life for your own advantage and not for the advantage of Christ, this is a time where you can look and you can see what the future holds from you. Separation from God. Brokenness. And I'm not asking you to get up and pick yourself up by your book, book, uh, bootstraps and, and do some, something that's going to make you feel better. No, I'm telling you to do the exact opposite. I'm telling you to look to Jesus and look to what he has done for you on the cross. Look to his righteousness. Look to his works. Fall on your knees and say, Jesus, save me. Make my life worth living. We'll pick up the rest of this text next week. Lord willing, let's pray. Gracious Father, you are so good. You allow us to see the end now so that we can be prepared for the end and live for you. And what great honor it is to live for. Help us, Father God, to not look at the mass media and what's happening and be filled with hopelessness, but help us to look at it with courage and to say, yes, but my God has a plan, and my God holds the future. Be glorified. Be honored. Turn someone's heart today to you. Maybe it's someone, Lord, who who has grown up in this church or has grown up in church but who knows church and who doesn't know you, help them to be born again so that they can seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray, and we praise you. Amen.